maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. This week we're debating foreign policy and the future of Afghanistan. Here's our host, the journalist and broadcaster Manveen Rana with more. It's the Sunday debate and this week's motion is one that's both urgent and necessary and reflects the situation that Afghanistan finds itself in once again in 2022. Today we're debating whether the West should work with the Taliban. It's a deeply divisive issue, but since the hardline militant group recaptured the Afghan capital, Kabul, in August 2021, the West has had little option but to consider it. In just a moment, we're going to hear an opening statement from each of our speakers today, Shabnam Nasimi and Christina Lam, and then I'll moderate a discussion between them and we'll see where we get to by the end of the debate. Our first speaker today is someone we welcome back to discuss this topic. Shabnam Nasimi is policy advisor to the Minister of Afghan Resettlement in the UK. She's also director of Afghan Witness, a platform dedicated to human rights reporting from Afghanistan. And she heads up the Centre for Information Resilience and the Conservative Friends of Afghanistan. Shabnam, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Manveen. Uh, it, it's great to be here, and it's so important that we continue to speak on on Afghanistan. Um, yesterday, I saw a report by Global News um, that a 22 years old Canadian um, has been arrested by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and it it was a quick realization for me that the Taliban are back into um, the type of regime they ran in the late 1990s, desperately seeking leverage for recognition and, and cash. Just, you know, in August, when Afghanistan fell to Taliban and, and Biden made the extraordinarily devastating decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, Taliban ordered women to remain in their homes. 
they looted shops, they fueled depots, uh, searched for government employees, ransacked homes for weapons, stole food and livestock under the pre pretense of a religious tax, and imposed the poll tax on over 8,000 Afghanis or about $100 for every resident of, of um, a certain district across Afghanistan. They've been terrorizing civilians, those who have had links with foreign troops, foreign organizations and governments over the last 20 years and have shown no mercy for the people of Afghanistan since they took over. So I guess the discussion of whether the West should or shouldn't work with the Taliban, in my opinion, is a difficult one. However, if you, re if you sort of look at, uh, more closely at what the Taliban have been doing so far, Yes, you know, if you if we if we look at whether the Taliban have changed or whether there is a Taliban 2.0, it, yes, they they've become more experts at PR and using social media, but their ideology hasn't changed, and I don't think we should forget that. I think one thing that devastated me more than anything since the withdrawal was diplomats across the world uh, asking the Taliban to adhere to women's rights and human rights. But these are empty slogans. How do you hold them to account? It is a difficult situation, but making these empty slogans in the hope that the Taliban will listen is naive. And I think any engagement or work with the Taliban over the next months or years to come will deserve the West uh, and international organizations to step in and really assess some of the enormous atrocities that is occurring all across Afghanistan, whether that's punishing journalists for free for speaking up, uh, imprisoning women in their homes, uh, tarnishing the the economy, uh, the human rights and humanitarian crisis that is unraveling. There is Afghanistan, you know, simply uh, speaking, is a broken country now, and. Every action by the Taliban needs to be looked at very, very closely uh, if we do decide to work with them or engage with them in any way. Thank you, Shabnam. Now, our next speaker is Christina Lam, OBE. She's chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. She's also a global fellow for the Woodrow Wilson International Centre and an author of books including... Farewell Kabul and Our Bodies, Their Battlefield. She's been covering Afghanistan for longer than we've been at war. Christina, the floor is yours. Thank you, Manveen. So it's also a pleasure to be with you, although it's uh, a very difficult uh, subject that we're talking about. I have been covering Afghanistan since 1988 when the Russians were there. And almost all that time, it's been a country at war. I was last there just after the Taliban took over uh, September and October of last year. And I cannot think of anywhere that I have any story that I've ever covered where things have turned around so quickly, so dramatically and so much for the worse. Uh, it was heartbreaking, frankly, to, to be there, to see Taliban everywhere, women pretty much, certainly at the beginning when I was there, nowhere to be seen. And almost everybody that I knew was in hiding or uh, trying to get out of the country, telling me a young guy who runs a cafe that used to be full of young Afghans that were very sort of excited about their future, uh, now an empty place. And he said to me it was if somebody had switched the TV screen off. So it's devastating what's happened. But what was also happening while I was there was there was a the start of a really bad economic crisis. The banks were closed. There was just one bank where people could get money from and it was long queues and very restricted how much you could take. Some people had been going every day for two weeks. People were selling their household objects on the streets, really humble things, uh, kettles, mattresses, because they just couldn't find money to eat. Of course, that was a few months ago. The situation has got much worse since then because there's still no money. People haven't been paid now for five months. There is 
food in the shops, but people don't have the money to pay for it. You have nurses working in hospitals, teachers in schools that haven't been paid since July. Afghanistan was already a country on the edge. It was very dependent on foreign aid. Uh, about 75% of its uh, expenditure was from foreign aid, and that's all gone. And also the income coming in has uh, reduced a lot. So it is has gone from being a country on the edge to being a country, you know, that really is falling off. And we've heard people over and over again from the UN Secretary General to various um, NGO chiefs to um, people like Gordon Brown talking about the fact that millions of Afghans, millions of Afghan children will starve to death if the foreign aid isn't restarted and if Afghan government reserves are not unfrozen at the moment. There's about $9 billion of Afghan government money, which has uh, been frozen since the Taliban took over. Now, nobody wants to deal with the Taliban, right? It's a very distasteful regime. Um, Shabdan mentioned some of the things. We know that they're stopping women from working. They've um, been killing people that they don't like. They've been imprisoning people that, that they consider enemies. Uh, it, but I fear we're in danger of punishing the Afghan population, 38 million people, because there is a government there that we don't like. And there are ways of dealing with the Taliban and getting money into Afghanistan that doesn't involve actually recognizing them as a government, but would stop millions of people from starving to death. So that's what I think we should be looking at. Thanks, Christina. Thank you both for those impassioned speeches and setting out the array of problems that Afghanistan now now faces. To understand the state of the country now, I suppose we really ought to take a step back and try to work out how we got here. Christina, as you, as you pointed out, you've been covering the country since the 80s when it was at war with Russia. Talk us through how the Taliban was born of, of that moment in Afghanistan after the Russians had left. Talk us through how, how it arrived on the scene and how we've got to, to the current place we're in with the movement. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try and tell it <laughs> in a, a truncated short way. version. <laughs> okay. So basically, I mean, when the Russians left in in eighty nine, unfortunately, all the different Afghan groups who'd been fighting the Russians then started fighting each other, and it became extremely chaotic. There were warlords controlling different bits of the country. People had checkpoints everywhere that you were having to pay to to just travel a few hundred yards. And the Taliban emerged from one of the groups that had been fighting the Russians, presented themselves as a group that wanted law and order to end all this fighting in the country. So at the beginning, you know, people, a lot of people welcomed that because they thought we're fed up with this situation. And so they were able to, to take much of the country quite quickly in the mid-90s. And then they ran the, the country from 96 to 2001. Then, of course, 9-11 happened. And that was bin Laden and al-Qaeda, which had been based in Afghanistan. And so the US and Western troops entered to topple the Taliban, which they did very quickly from the starting of bombing in October 2001. By December 2001, the Taliban were gone. However, I think there was a miscalculation right from the start, which was the Taliban didn't come from nowhere. They mm. obviously did have support. The Taliban is an ideological movement. It's very conservative. It's a religious movement. Taliban means religious students. And many people in rural areas in Afghanistan did support them. So I think it was a mistake to sort of cut them out of everything from the beginning. And so what happened was they fled to Pakistan, but they didn't go away. They waited their moment. They got help notoriously from Pakistan's military intelligence, ISI. And then the West got involved in the war in Iraq and took their eye off Afghanistan in 2003. And the Taliban took advantage of that and started coming back by 2005 there was uh, a lot of fighting starting again in Afghanistan. 
And the West and NATO sent more and more troops, but never managed to defeat the Taliban. And I mean, what's interesting is for much of that time, the Taliban was considered to only be about 15 to 25,000 people, whereas at one point there was 140,000 NATO troops with all the most sophisticated hardware and equipment on earth. And then they trained supposedly 300,000 Afghan military and security services. So how was this much smaller force able to defeat this much bigger force? And of course, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I would say perhaps principle of all was that the Afghan government was extremely unpopular. And anywhere I went in last few years across Afghanistan, people would tell me that the biggest problem in their lives was the Afghan government and the corruption. And uh, and so the Taliban were able to capitalize on, on that. And as we saw, the Afghan security forces didn't really fight once the American forces left um, because they'd really been trained as a almost a Western army that was used to having all the equipment and medivac and various things that were suddenly taken away. The Taliban was able to, without really fighting very much, take the whole country very quickly, as we we saw, and the Afghan government fled. So, but this Taliban, when they took over, claimed that they were different to the previous, as Shabnan talked about, Taliban 2.0, and that this was uh, a different kind of Taliban, that a lot of them had, uh, the political leadership had been in Qatar negotiating, they were used to a a different kind of life, and and so this wasn't going to be the same. But I'm afraid that we are seeing more and more of the same things as the past now. And Shabnam, you you were born in Afghanistan. Just tell us a bit about some of your earlier memories of of the Taliban and you know what you've grown up hearing and experiencing. My family came to the UK about 22 years ago during the first uh, round of a sort of period of, of Taliban rule, and I, I was a, I was a young girl, about 80 years old, when when we fled. And I think I can speak for the majority of Afghan girls that living on the Taliban rule is a dark, dark uh, fate for women in Afghanistan. I think many would, and I've heard this over the last couple of weeks from from women in the country, that they'd rather die uh, than, than comp- continue to uh, to li- live in sort of under slavery uh, under this this group. And it's it's the stories that I've I've been hearing already since uh, the Taliban took over has been a very difficult one. The Taliban follow an extremely conservative Islamic ideology that regard women as as canis or commodities and therefore as spoils of war. And since takeover, we've already heard that many Taliban fighters have been looting uh, communities and, and forcing women into sex slavery. The group, um, and I, you know, just going back into some some of the things that uh, that Christina mentioned uh, earlier, in, in terms of the Taliban and, and how they were able to d- defeat us, this was not done militarily uh, in Afghanistan. I think one of the things we, we some, sometimes fail to understand is that the Taliban um, and, and the, the 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 win was not driven by some grand strategy, but by politics. It was you know, us being impatient with the progress of democracy in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, back in uh, 2001, when the the entire world decided to step in to fight the Taliban and fight extremism, was sort of a blank canvas. Uh, There were no institutions. Uh, There was, you know, uh, infrastructure and and no schools. Nothing existed. Um, In Kabul, for instance, there were about 300, 400 people uh, living in the city. Now the in the last 20 years, that's increased to about 8 million. Um, before, sort of, um, in, in 2001, there was zero people, um, the population didn't use mobile phones or technology. Now, that, that, that number increased to 90%. So, when we, when we look at Afghanistan under Taliban rule, I think it's one thing to say, to, to sit in the outside in, in, in the West uh, safely, to look at, you know, this group as potentially a 
a, a group that is accepted by the population. It's, it's, you know, I hear a lot of stories of people saying, well, the Taliban are Afghan and this is how they want to live their lives. So who are we to interfere? And it, it, it's that misinformation and lack of understanding of Afghanistan and its, its different uh, ethnic groups and the culture that has meant that, you know, this is where we are today. The Taliban are, you know, a predominantly Pashtun Islamic fundamentalist group. And there, there are certain ways and their ideology and their way of life that is widely not accepted by the people of Afghanistan. Um, now, I do agree that in the last 20 years, one of our failures probably was that we didn't engage with them as, as much as we, we should have. There are parts, um, and particularly southern Afghanistan, where there are communities that, that, that lived under Taliban rule, even in the last 20 years. It's uh, about 30% of, of the country was somewhat under their control. So engagement with them and direct communication in terms of how they want to be involved in the governing of Afghanistan should have been a step we, we, we could have taken. But to say that the entire country accepted this group uh, and that's why we lost and that's why the army didn't fight, it, 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 again, it is naive. Um, Afghanistan is predominantly foreign aid dependent. It is a country that was starting to find, find its feet. But for 20, uh, just 20 years, it is, is nowhere near enough for a country like that to become independent and make its own choices independently. We needed to stay. We needed to, in, in basic terms, hold its hand and ensure that, that th those progresses that were made over the last 20 years continued. So, yeah. <laughs> but Shabnam, uh, you're, you're right. A lot of progress has been made over the last 20 years. But is there some truth in, in what Christina said in that, you know, the Taliban did take over much faster than anyone thought they would? And that's partly because they had done an operation of sort of convincing people on the ground. Is, were they seen by some people compared to a corrupt government as a, a safer bet? I mean, ha have they drawn a lot of support from the fact that they're not seen as corrupt as the government was? Well, look, I think... We've seen the former government officials, including Ashraf Ghani and Hamdullah Maheb, who was National Security Advisor, and many others have actually been interviewed since the, the takeover. They've come back into the scene and they've shared their side of the story as to what, what, how it, what happened and how it all unraveled. And one thing that I clearly picked up on it, and it's a sentiment that's probably widely shared by Afghans, that there was clear internal negotiations that were, that were taking place between the government and, and the Taliban for months. There are people within the government who decided to step aside uh, and allow the Taliban to, to come back in. So I think we, we, we really have to assess whether it, it was the option of, you know, a corrupt government that developed over the last 20 years in, in Afghanistan or the choice was the Taliban. I don't think it was that clear cut and, and simple. Uh, people, yes, wanted a much more fairer and equal society, but a country that has faced decades of war, corruption um, and inequality was, was going to be inevitable. It is a very, very diverse country. There are many different ethnic groups with, you know, some claiming majority. It is very much uh, divided. And so we need to look at this in the point of view of the people of Afghanistan rather than what it might seem to us here in the West. Christina, do you think if aid was provided through a Taliban government now, would it be used more effectively or less effectively than some of the previous governments? Well, first of all, I just wanted to pick up on something that Shabnan said, which I think is really important when she talks about mobile phones, which might sound something mm. trivial. But the fact is, so in 2001, when the Taliban first time round were toppled, it was a country completely cut off from the rest of the world. You know, I was, people were asking me, what is this World Trade Center that's been blown up? And I, in the end, I came, went out at one point and took a picture to show people because there was just no connection from what was happening outside. That's completely different. Now, even in really remote villages, you find people on smartphones, on Facebook, you know, uh, uh, watching what's going on in different places and seeing how life is in other places and realising that life doesn't have to be how their life is. So I think it's very difficult for the Taliban to operate 
the way that they operated last time because now people know something different and can see something different. On the other hand, there is no kind of um, obvious alternative at the moment. There's no you know, opposition within the country, like an opposition movement that people are rallying around or anything like that. So that is what leads me to say that at the moment, all you've got there is the Taliban. And you've also got a, a large population of people that are desperate and are hungry. And so the only way to help them, unfortunately, is to engage with the Taliban. I'm not saying necessarily to actually like give all the money to the Taliban for them to distribute or anything like that. You can do it other ways. There are work workaround solutions. You can do it through the UN. The UN can directly pay teachers through UNICEF. NGOs could directly be funding medical clinics and things like that. But you you can't really do that without the Taliban agreeing it at all. Otherwise, your people can be kicked out. They can close these things down. So you need to have some kind of engagement. But it doesn't have to be, and I think shouldn't be them, that is distributing the, this aid. But you know, here was a country that was getting about five and a half billion dollars of aid every year and that stopped and at the moment and it, its income I think was about two and a half billion now from what I understand revenue the Taliban are raising about three million a day through uh, customs and taxes so that's about a billion dollars a year so that's all the income that the country is getting so it's a really really desperate situation and it worries me that we keep listening to people we keep seeing i mean unfortunately not many journalists are going that has dropped off the news quite a bit but people are still going and and showing the malnutrition the desperate people the hospitals without medicines and so we're all seeing it but we're not actually doing anything about it what are we waiting for are we just going to wait until millions of people have died and then say, well, you know, maybe we should have done something. Is there a chance that by providing aid to what sounds like a failing state, you end up allowing the Taliban to continue governing when, you know, given how badly things are going, they might otherwise be uh, thrown out of office. There might be some sort of uprising. Well, I mean, that's the question, is it? Isn't it? If by providing aid, are you helping keep them in, in power? Um, but as I said, that it's not as if there's any real alternative at the moment. There's not an, another group to deal with. We're seeing people protesting in the street, you know, saying, let us eat. And uh, I think the fact that the government reserves have been frozen, you know, it, it's difficult really to, to justify that and I think a danger also by not engaging is not only that millions of people may starve to death, which is the principal fear, but also that you might end up empowering the more hardline factions of the Taliban. And um, one thing I think is very important to bear in mind is that the the Taliban is not. Uh, monolithic. It's a, a divided group and there are several factions and uh, there is one faction that is much more in favour of having a more inclusive government, of letting women work, of engaging with the outside world. And then at the other extreme, there is a group that re rejects all that and thinks, we won this, why should we deal with the outside world? Uh, the talk about the, the, the suicide bombers and how suicide bombers were one of the reasons that they won and that therefore those people should be very um, active in any future government. So if, if the West continues to refuse to deal with the Taliban, then those hardline people will be saying, you see, there's no point in us trying to be more moderate, I'm not sure if moderate is quite the word you use about them, but um, there's, because we're not getting anything in return. And, and so uh, I, I fear that that is another risk too. And at the moment, I would say that the more hardline group are in the ascendancy.
Shabnam, you know, if if you still lived in Afghanistan, and even though you were faced with, you know, as you said, there are people who sort of say living under Taliban government is a fate worse than death. But even given that, if you could see people around you starving, which we're starting to see in Afghanistan now, we're hearing horror stories, and the pictures coming out of, of uh, hospitals and the babies who, who, you know, not getting food, with hearing about people selling their children to feed the rest of the family. Would you not want the West to step in and provide aid just to be able to keep people alive at least? Well, look, I think I, I want to clear something up. I'm not against uh, aid being offered to Afghanistan. As someone who has family, extended family, friends in Afghanistan, um, seeing uh, the fate of, of, of starving, so, uh, that something might, that, that, that's something they might have to experience is, is devastating. It's heartbreaking. I <laughs> Um, I, I spent I've, I, my mental state over the last couple of months has been very much distraught. I, so I, I, I'm not saying that we should not be offering humanitarian aid and assistance to Afghanistan, but I think it's understanding how we're going to be doing this. Now, I do agree with Christina that if there is a way for us to offer that assistance that doesn't have to go directly through the Taliban, then I'm all for it. But so far, those discussions have been had, and yet we haven't come to any sort of conclusion. Now, the logistics around it, um, there are already cases of humanitarian support that has been offered to Afghanistan that the Taliban have taken. That, that have been, I mean, these, the, the aid is targeted at communities and, and people across Afghanistan. So it, administering also how we offer that aid, whether there are people on the ground from some of these international organizations and governments is, is important. Um, we need to have more people on the ground to be able to ensure that the aid is distributed equally and fairly and that it doesn't fall into, into the hands of the Taliban who may use it for other purposes uh, and, and may steal people's food and, and, and shelter. Um, but I, I think, you know, something that we need to keep in mind very closely is that when we, when we engage with the Taliban, um, uh, it's, it's important to understand that, yes, there aren't, there may not be any other groups, uh, as Christina mentioned, there may not be any other opposition groups who have, uh, who have you know, come together to, to fight against the Taliban. But in a country currently under Taliban rule where even raising your voice to, to critique the Taliban could be, you know, a fate of death, where we just saw recently an Afghan professor from Kabul University was, was kidnapped for voicing his concern over this regime. No one has the confidence to be able to come together to form an opposition and an alternative. So when we're saying, you know, if there's, there's no other option, well, it, that other option is not possible. So how can we expect uh, any other group for us to, to, um, to come together for us to work with? I think what we need to do is ensure that our, we, we don't present empty language in terms of, you know, stating that we're holding them to account or asking the Taliban to allow girls back into school and not to target former security forces. Um, I mean, I see a lot of language over um, and, you know, condemning the Taliban on social media and from world leaders and diplomats. But none of this actually means anything if we're not putting pressure on the Taliban and, and we're not showing that any of these sort of actions are against international laws and international conventions and that, you know, it's against human rights. And this is not, this is just not acceptable uh, way, a way of ruling a country. So I, I would stress that any engagement with the Taliban needs to have strong, we need to have strong alliance with um, our allies across the, uh, the world to, to ensure that the Taliban understand that they cannot go back to their old ways, that any chance of them uh, governing Afghanistan and us working with them deserves and requires for them to respect people's rights. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it's a difficult area. It is, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate that the people of Afghanistan are having to suffer as a result of our confusion uh, in terms of what sort of relationship we want with the Taliban. Uh, but it, it also requires us to really look closely and put some of the mechanisms that need to be put in place to ensure that the Taliban don't continue uh, the, their, their, their sort of traditional and barbaric practices. And Shabnam, 
accepting that we really do need to be holding the Taliban government to account for what they're doing and, and human rights abuses, what do you make of Christina's argument that the Taliban itself is divided? There is a, a more outward-looking part of it that wants to modernise a bit, that wants to engage with the West, and then there's a more fundamental, more extreme version. And at the moment, if we don't provide aid, it's the more extreme version that will win. Do we need to engage and, and provide aid partly through them, but with the proviso that we are holding them to account for, for their actions? I guess there are two, two points to this. First of all, the Taliban are a very, very divided group. They're made up of very, very different uh, segments. But stating that there are moderates to Taliban who, are, who want to be different and want to work differently and operate differently, it's in some ways misunderstanding how the group operates because the foot soldiers, those on the ground, and those that are, you know, face to face with, with the people of Afghanistan every day, they, ha they won't change and, and they haven't. Those are the top who are, I guess, more in some ways diplomatic and want to be seen and recognized as leaders. There's, the, st the structure of the Taliban isn't a coherent and organized structure for, for different uh, groups of, of within the Taliban to listen to each other and to operate like a government, like an organization. The Taliban are made up of, as I said, uh, um, they're very much tribal. A lot of them are uneducated. They don't have the skills to operate as a functioning organization or, or a government. So to expect us for, for the majority of, of the group to listen to some of their prominent, uh, I guess, modernized leaders in the words of, of you know, uh, Christina, it, it, it's a difficult picture to, to see to actually become a reality. It's, it's something that might take years for them to figure out. But in the immediate instance right now, they are not a group that can function properly for us to expect them to, to become more modernized. And I, I just want to reference one other thing as well. In 2014, I think it was Sir, Jenkin, uh, Sir John Jenkins, who was commissioned by Dem David Cameron, uh, Cameron to review, to, to conduct a review of Muslim brother, bro Brotherhood. And I think something that he picked up on is, uh, is quite interesting. He found no evidence that engagement with Islamist groups and movements like, like the Taliban had ever worked to moderate, moderate their actions. So I think in some ways, we're also very optimistic that engagement with the Taliban and if we begin to work with them, maybe it will mean that they will begin to listen to our requests and, and moderate and change. This is an, you know, a very extreme Islamist group that, that, that uses an absolute, absolutist version of, of Sharia as the ex exclusive le legal system, for instance. So it's going to be very difficult for them to change. Uh, deep down, they are still the same group that they were back in the late 1990s. Christina, given all we know about the Taliban and how they've operated and, and how, how they treat people and everything you've seen over the years, how, how would you feel comfortable providing funding to the country at the moment? How, you know, how, how would you want to see that work? Well, I just want to clarify something or what Shabnan's uh, re representing of what I've said. I have not described the Taliban as moderate in any way. I said they're a very divided group. There are some more hardline than others. All of this is relative. None of this is ideal. In an ideal world, you know, we wouldn't be um, engaging with them at all. But it unfortunately isn't an ideal world. The West deals with a lot of distasteful regimes around, around the world. I think to say that the Taliban isn't a sort of co coherent organization, this is a, a group that we've underestimated for 20 years, which is why they ended up defeating NATO. I mean, they inflicted, let's not forget, the most humiliating defeat on the most powerful military alliance in the world, of modern times. And I think that's one of the problems, that there is a risk that that has so shocked the international community and political leaderships of many countries, including the UK, that they don't quite know what to do. And they, they rather than looking at the, the current situation and how they'd rather forget about it. I mean, somebody said to me, if the White House could erase the, the word Afghanistan from the dictionary, they would do. They just don't want to mm. even think about it. But the fact is, you've got to think about it. You, you're going to, if you just ignore the country, then you're going to compound mistakes that were made in the past that's led to this situation. 
by having, you know, what will be the world's worst humanitarian disaster. So none of this is ideal, but I think, you know, a refusal to, to get involved and, um, you know, what are we hoping that they just go away, that that isn't going to happen, that you've got something that needs to be addressed immediately, and that is millions of people or children that are going to die if we don't get aid to them now, not tomorrow, but now. And there are ways to do it through, but there has to be some, sadly, some engagement with the Taliban because at the moment it's their country. You can't, you know, be taking things into the country, setting up organisations things without any kind of approval or permission. But it doesn't have to be... I'm not for a moment suggesting giving hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to Taliban to hand out. No, that would be disastrous. It's having permission to be able to operate and use other groups, NGOs, Afghan organisations on the ground to try and address the immediate crisis. And Christina, you've covered difficult parts of the world for decades now. I mean, are there any historical precedents that we could draw on for this? Are there any other examples you can think of where we've had to deal with governments we may not want to in order to prevent people from dying? Oh, there's numerous places. I mean, there are many countries where we're getting aid into places where we don't like the regime. Syria at the moment, um, Zimbabwe, you know, we don't, I've often had discussions there because in that country, a lot of the aid is going through the government of previously of Robert Mugabe, now of um, Ngagwa, that is repressing people, killing its people. But the feeling is, if you don't give aid, then people are going to die of starvation. So it's better to work through them. I don't... (laughs) I, I think that when you give aid, you have some leverage, right? If we were to agree to start resuming aid, and, and some aid has resumed, but it's very small to Afghanistan, that has to be used as leverage to get the Taliban to agree to certain things. It's frankly the only leverage we have. We don't have anything else. So they need money. They need help for people because if people start to die en masse, they're going to be blamed for it. Their own soldiers are knocking on people's doors asking for food because they don't have money. So we should be able to use the fact that they need that to get some of these things, you know, basic agreements like girls being able to go to secondary school, women to be able to go to work, you know, basic human rights. And Shabnam, what do you make of that? You know, this isn't an ideal world. We don't want the Taliban to be in power, but given they are and there's no sign of anything changing anytime soon. Do we need to use aid as leverage in order to to try to mitigate their actions, in order to try to influence how they govern? I agree with Christina. This is, uh, Afghanistan is facing one of the world's worst humanitarian crisis. There are millions of children that are facing the fate of, of starvation. It is a very urgent crisis and it requires urgent action. And so I'm not disputing that. And and yes, unfortunately, there is no other way at the moment. There, there, there's no other option in terms of how, how else we can deliver our, our, our aid and our, assist, our, our assistance to Afghanistan. But I, I urge and I, I, what, I, what I'm stressing and what I want to see is that any sort of engagement in terms of offering aid to Afghanistan does not result in us sort of trying to blind our eyes uh, or looking away at, at some of the key human rights abuses that, that, that are happening across the country. The fear is that once we do begin to work with the Taliban, uh, and as Christina mentioned, you know, Biden would prefer that we remove Af- Afghanistan from any of their foreign policy or completely as a problem that they have to deal with. And the fear is that the world will move on and will begin to think, you know, it's not our business. Afghanistan can, it's, it's there, it's, as, as, as Christina mentioned, it's, it's, it's Taliban's country now. It's their, it's their way of life. It's how they choose to live. What's it to us? How can we tell people and a country like Afghanistan, what to do and how to live. And I've already begun to, uh, to, to hear this across, you know, the, the political spectrum. I've heard many uh, tell me that 
you know, maybe a Taliban won because that's how Afghans want to live and we should not have an intervention, uh, a sort of a, a foreign policy that involves intervening in people's uh, affairs and, and how they and how those countries want to operate. And the fear is that that will continue and people will persist to look the other way and accept Afghanistan as a Taliban state, as an extremely traditional conservative Islamic country. And there are already, you know, we've already seen the Taliban invite the Al-Qaeda back to the country. There's a growing ISIS problem that 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 uh, these extremist and terrorist activities are spreading across the borders. And so there's a real uh, t um, terrorist threat as well. You know, the Taliban is still uh, in the U.S. and U.N. sanction list. They have not been removed yet. And we're dealing with an incredibly barbaric, inhumane group. So. Yes, let's act now. Let's make sure that we we help people through the winter. Um, Afghanistan is win uh, experiencing one of the worst, harshest winters uh, in in the world. The, you know there is no electricity. The, the 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 problem is is increasing. But let's also make sure that this does not in, in any way allow us to move away from discussions around human rights, around women's rights, on on how other ethnic groups want to live you know we've got already a lot of persecution against the Hazara group against Tajiks and those who are opposing the Taliban and there are real real conversations to be had so I want to ensure that that, that those things are will continue that, that those con, uh, conversations will continue and that any engagement in any way to deal with the emergency urgent humanitarian crisis does not allow allow uh, for us to to look the other way. And just finally, I'd be really interested to know, has this discussion, has what you've heard today changed your mind in any way? So I just want to ask both of you where you stand now and whether today's discussion has, has changed your mind or made you, made you think of, of the argument in a different way. What have you taken from, from today, um, starting with Christina? I mean, I'm not sure that Shabdan and I are really in a very different position at the end of the day. I think we both feel that there's an urgent crisis that needs to be addressed and people need to be helped. And, you know, I feel very strongly that that is the main thing that needs to be dealt with. And if you have to deal with people you'd rather not to in order to stop millions of children from starving. Well, I'd rather do that than watch millions of people starve, frankly. And, you know, there's time to, in the future, to look at, you know, what is there some kind of alternative to the Taliban to look at helping other groups. But there is an immediate crisis now that needs to be addressed and that's uh, the only way to do it but I just fear that because of the the shock at what happened that there still is in in governments and capitals around the world you know let's not forget many of whom themselves put a lot of money and lost people as as well as all the hundreds of thousands of Afghans that were killed you know, it's very difficult for them to now countenance helping the very group that, that did all this, that they were fighting against. But, you know, there are ways of doing it that doesn't necessarily bolster the Taliban, that maybe enables us to, to get the Taliban to agree having a more inclusive government, allowing women to do what they should be allowed to do. It would be a question of allowing, but um, giving the rights that, that people should have to minorities. And uh, yeah, that's, so I, I still feel that. Uh, I don't think I'm going to change my position. In fact, I, I'm going back, I think, next week and dreading really to see what the situation's going to be. And Shabnam, has, have you changed your mind at all during this discussion? And where do you stand now? Your final thoughts? I, I agree with Christina. We're not, our views are not very distinct when it comes to whether we shouldn't we need to engage with the Taliban in order to protect the people of Afghanistan from hunger. I guess my only thing is that, and I will continue to stress this, is how we go about doing this, because we clearly still don't have a proper, a sort of a coherent and, and responsible plan. Engagement uh, with the Taliban, I think, deserves 
first of all, engaging with the, the di- Afghan diaspora, particularly those who have recently left Afghanistan. We've got to use, tap into some of those expertise and knowledge that exists now across the world. The US and European countries need to work with Afghans to find a way forward and, and coordinate an assistant assistance plan or, or humanitarian aid program that, um, again, upholds and ensures that we continue this conversation. You know, the UK is the, is, uh, is the current G7 chair. You know, there, there is scope for them to convene a, a contact group of the G7 and other nations and commit to coordinating help to, to, um, uh, to the Afghan people while also, whilst also holding the new regime to account. You know, we need to list, draw up a list of incentives, sanctions, actions that we need to take, uh, that, that we, we want them to take. This still hasn't been done. Months, you know, we've now four, four, four or five months has passed since the withdrawal and I'm still not hearing or seeing engagement and planning uh, being undertaken by by the west um in terms of how we begin to 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 work with the taliban this isn't this this deserves rightly so much more time and, and emphasis and I, I don't want us again to make a mistake of doing something sort of hastily really quickly and then uh, regret it moving down the line just like you know, over the last 20 years, there's been many regrets in the way that we've operated. The fact that, that, that a corrupt institution and government existed and there were errors in terms of our, our intervention. There, there were conversations that weren't had then. Let's make sure that we don't make the same mistake again and do it right this time. Shabnab. There's one thing I'd like to add as well. When we send delegations to speak to the Taliban, we must be sending women. <laughs> We're watching one delegation after another, all male, going and speaking to Taliban, including the British. What kind of signal is that sending if you're talking to them about wanting, you know, women to be able to do everything and having an inclusive government and then you send an all-male delegation? That's got to end. Well, for that reason alone, I'm glad we've managed to do this as an all-women panel. Um, (laughs) Thank you both. That's all we've got time for today. If you're listening at home, I hope... It's a difficult issue, but I hope that's allowed you to explore some of the difficulties of it and allowed you to make up your own minds. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Christina Lamb and Shabnam Nasimi. I'm Manveen Rana. You've been listening to The Sunday Debate with Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.